Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. What if you couldn't buy food? Not like the Brexit and pandemic-induced recent shortages in supermarkets, where there might not be any spring onions or cucumbers for a couple of days. What if there was no food in the shops at all? What would you do? Recent crises have exposed the weaknesses of globalisation and its hyper-extended supply chains. Security is a buzzword, not just for Keir Starmer, but 21st century politics as a whole as both the EU and the US onshore industry and seek to insulate their populations from the systemic shocks that have punctured the neoliberal order and economic consensus. These shocks will only increase in frequency, particularly as ecological collapse further destabilises the planet, inducing famines, as well as the mass movement of peoples fleeing extreme weather events. Government inaction means an at least two degree rise in global temperatures by the year 2100 is near certain. Human activity is the root cause of these problems, and we need to change our behaviour to remedy them. If you accept that all of this is true, what are you going to do about it? How will you protect yourself and your family? The severity of the situation demands more significant action than recycling empty tinnies and eating less meat. I think one of the answers lies in local agrarianism. The construction of many, many family homes with enough land to grow food and raise livestock for the people that live in them. A radical improvement of infrastructure, encompassing public transport, tree planting, man-made marshland to mitigate flooding, and the resurrecting of our lost connection to the land and our food. These changes would not just protect British people from some of the consequences of climate change, but also make significant advances toward net zero by eliminating our societal dependence on private cars and industrialised agriculture, two big polluters. Worth considering also is the meaningless and unfulfilling lives many of us lead in late-stage capitalism, governed by the new religion of mega-corporations and their extractive practices, with little to no regard for human happiness or our quality of life. One person, who's not just devoted a lot of thought to these ideas, but lives them on his small holding in Somerset, is farmer Chris Smage. 
His books, Small Farm Future and Say No to a Farm-Free Future, left a lasting impression on me. And not just because I was reading them during lockdown in a South East London basement flat. I spoke to him last week. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show oh. Pubcast. Chris Mage, hello. Hi, how are you? Good, yeah, good to be here. Very glad to have you here. I can't wait to talk to you, to be honest with you. Ever since um, I read um, Small Farm Future, it sort of opened my eyes, really, about food production, um, particularly because I started reading it during lockdown and, uh, you know, th- th- uh, tinged with a bit of English romanticism, but also you're, you know, you're inevitably going to think about supply chains and food security, food scarcity. Um, but we're here today because... There's a follow-up, shall we say, saying no to a farm-free future, um, which we'll discuss. Before we get there, I would just sort of invite you to introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what you do. Right. Well, um, I live in Somerset uh, on a a small holding, small farm. Um, We uh, basically grow veg, do a little local veg box scheme. Prior to that, I was a social scientist, um, I kind of worked in universities and research centres, um, kind of, I guess it was in the 1990s when the whole um, issue of climate change and, you know, various ecological crises that we're heading into started rising in prominence and I suppose kind of came to the view that the food system was a real critical point in that so also perhaps a little early onset midlife crisis or kind of (laughs) disillusionment with office life so you know I had this crazy notion my wife and I you know that we'd um, get some land and produce some food uh, which we have it's been very challenging and I suppose I've got a little bit drawn back into the kind of writing and analysis sort of uh, I suppose along the lines of you know why is this so difficult (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. how do we you know how do we make um, these kinds of local food solutions Um, how do we generalize them you know how do we meet the 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 crises that we're in Um, you, you know with with this kind of grassroots local community food activism really it's um almost like a little bit of a perhaps um modern day fast of the land then because i think seymour was a was a well he was a writer wasn't he wrote wrote the book but a prolific writer uh Mm. journalist and broadcaster as well wasn't he so Mm, that's right yeah probably a favorable comparison for me (laughs) to invite yeah and i mean i think that's an important point i mean you know there was that sort of back to the land movement um in in the 60s and i think you know to my mind it's important this notion of of people being part of uh a, a part of an ecosystem part of an agro ecosystem figuring out you know how we can be protagonists in a in a local food production space and you know people are tremendously productive you know one of i mean there's so many problems with where we're at in the world today but one of the problems is substituting labor you know essentially for uh, machinery, um, agrochemicals, sort of taking people out of that um, space of being an ecological protagonist and sort of using a lot of very high energy, high capital and ultimately quite toxic and damaging <laughs> alternatives. Um, so, 
I mean, you mentioned the, the, the um, I forget what you said, a bit of English romanticism. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is one of the, it's both a strength and a weakness. I think people are drawn to um, uh, food and food production and um, the countryside. Um, and, and, you know, the romantics, I always think they get a bad press that, you know, they kind of had a, uh, a you know, they emerged at the time with, with you know, great industrialization and urbanization and all of the problems that, that they saw and, and, you know, they tried to articulate a better way. And I think that's what we need to do now. And it's very easy to dismiss it all as, oh, you know, romantic, bucolic, backward looking. Um, that's not what it's about. You know, it's about learning from people who have figured out low energy, renewable um, food systems, who have made themselves a, a kind of ongoing part of um, local landscapes and rural landscapes. Um, so, you know, it's not about trying to um, set something in aspect or sort of go back to some notion of, a, of an idyllic past. It's kind of about figuring out low energy, low capital, renewable food systems, um, but also kind of getting over ourselves a bit and not assuming that we have better answers than people did in the past. You know, they had long periods of figuring out, you know, how do I actually make this this farming system work? You know, in the environment, I find myself without a lot of exotic inputs. And, you know, we can learn a lot from that if we, you know, if, if we attune ourselves to it. Absolutely. And, I, you know, we'll get into the detail of the argument well the the case you make in 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 the books because really it's a pretty radical reordering of not just food production but also society mm -hmm. um but before we get to that could you sort of state the context the the why why do we need to reorient food production why do we need to potentially quite radically adjust the way that we live in britain Okay, well, we face, you know, what a lot of people call the polycrisis. Climate change, obviously, is a thing that um, is, you know, particularly right now, as we see what's going on around the world, is, um, you know, probably the biggest game changer. But really critical as well is energy futures. I mean, you know, the 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 much the largest part of the reason um, that we're in the climate crisis is because of fossil energy. You know, it's cheap, it's abundant, it can do incredible things but it's making a mess of um of the planet basically and and the atmosphere so you know one line of argument is okay we can you know we have to i think pretty much everyone agrees we need to stop using fossil fuels uh, the question is can we replace um the energy system at you know the level of versatility and abundance and price that we have become accustomed to with fossil fuels my feeling is no we can't um you know we're still like last year we used more fossil fuels than ever before in the history of humanity yes you know we've got other technologies renewables and so on but they're still um you know that they're really just adding to the uh, um the, the the existing energy mix they're not substituting so a lot depends on whether you think you know can we just carry on with business but business as usual but um but cleaner you know um renewable I think not. So that pushes us towards a, a lower energy system. You know, capital and energy is very much intertwined. So it pushes us towards a lower capital system, as you say. And then everything relates to everything else. You know, then we look at urbanism, you know, the, the concentration of people 
in big cities you know the, the the water the food the energy that goes into that the 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 energy that has to go into dealing with wastes you know that's all sits on top of this this kind of fossil energy and and climate change causing um monster that we're dealing with you know uh, and then obviously the way that value is extracted um you know the way that we produce crops the way that we produce um finance out of you know these kind of dense human networks you know all of this sort of goes into the mix um and yeah you know you start trying to sort of untease one part of it and it, it kind of takes you somewhere else so yeah it's a huge set of issues that we need to try and untease and time isn't really on our side either you know so if we're we're sat here and we look at that context and we go right okay we need to um secure the food supply we need to reduce um the emissions from doing so but also just more generally sort of our the energy drains that we're taking um out of the earth and out of society we need to address that there's also probably a piece here about uh just generally meaningful work yeah absolutely for individuals in our society as well um let's say we want to address those problems how do we do so? What is the idea? How could we uh, reorient our society in order to to challenge each of those various problems? Well, I guess I guess part of my focus is that there is you know there isn't one single idea, and it has to be um, you know it has to be people kind of doing what they can locally, organising with other people, um, and you know I, I suppose w- one way you know people like Rob Hopkins of the Transition Town movement have sort of made the point that you know the whole sort of fabric of local communities has been sort of um, unstitched and this kind of top-down um, kind of system of, of global supply chains and global governance has kind of stepped in to provide all these things for us ultimately i think um you know that's that that's not going to be um you know that's not going to be able to persist long term and i think you know it will fall apart in all sorts of ways that certainly i i don't think anyone can predict um in in quite chaotic ways so the you know the task before us is to try and restitch that fabric for ourselves however we can um, and of course, that how we do that will depend on you know who we are individually, which communities we live in. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't think you know nobody is coming to save us here. You know, we we have to sort of figure this out piecemeal for ourselves. Um, but I, I guess one thing I would say it, about food specifically is that we've got into this logic of of, of sort of commodity farming, where basically everywhere in the world is forced into producing you know it's a kind of comparative advantage thing in a sort of globalized supply chain where everywhere produces that pretty much the one or or you know handful of products um that it's easiest for it to produce and sell into global markets and then you get this kind of logic of overproduction you know arable farming in particular you know sort of six, 60 70 percent of global cropland is devoted to just 10 crops mostly cereals a few grain legumes we're producing way too much of these things um you know this emphasis on making them higher yielding um um but then that lowers the price so then we push out into new areas um you know the 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 the, the low price nature means that you know there's this pressure to add value so we start feeding them to livestock or using them for biofuels so we kind of need to get out of this overproduction dynamic and start reclaiming food, you know, as 
some as actual food to feed us locally where we are. So even somewhere like here in London, you know, people can do that at, at some level, but you know, we have to go beyond that and start thinking about the sustainability of our, you know, of our whole geopolitics and whole geographies of residence. Particularly if um I think one of the sort of more compelling arguments as well from a, if you want to be completely self-interested about it and you were to just say okay, you live I don't know, let's say you live in London or let's say you live in uh, a market town or, you know, any area within Britain. Um destabilization of climate shocks, whether that's literally from the weather events themselves mm. or possibly, almost certainly, from the mass migration that's going to happen as a result of large parts of the planet becoming inhabitable. It's going to be destabilizing. Food, food supply chains may be impacted. So you go, right, what can I do? I'm going to secure my own food supply. Either I'm going to move onto a small holding, I'm going to start to grow my own food. Um, possibly maybe it comes top down from government. Maybe government says I'm going to build a million small holdings across Britain. That would be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. Um, could you could you sort of explain the model, if you like, of how food production works on that scale? Is it, you know, like I said there, just me by myself or my small holding and I've got to produce everything that I'm going to eat? Is it, your would your vision for that working successfully be sort of, you know, more um, localised and cooperative? How do you see it actually working in practice? Well, I mean, I think it's this is a time for to experiment. I mean, I don't have a, a kind of single model, you know, Chris's vision of the, you know, that I'm going to sort of, you know, blueprint that I'm going to impose on the world. It's a time to experiment. Obviously, as much low carbon energy as we can bring through um, into the future, that makes it easier. You know, there is a danger that, you know, if if we have too much energy, you know, I think... As I was saying, I think part of what we need to do is make ourselves local ecological protagonists. And that mm. means, sort of, you know, limiting the amount of exotic energy that we're bringing in. But yeah, you know, it's um, uh, if, if, if there's no energy available to us apart from our own um, labor or crops or livestock, you know, that that can be quite tough. But, um, you know, I think definitely be thinking in terms of horticulture and at a slightly larger scale, um, mixed systems um, involving basically livestock. Not and, and to think of livestock not as something that we eat. <laughs> I mean, that's the most inefficient use of them. Uh, you know, the the meat or the milk or the eggs or whatever is the kind of icing on the cake. But really, it's you know being incorporating them into ecological cycles where they're doing ecological work for us um so you know all of these things uh, have been worked out historically you know building in diversity building in perennials and, and and tree crops um um but yeah just just kind of figure you know figuring out how to make this this work um and yeah uh, i suppose the other thing i was going to say is you know, and I mentioned the, the the importance of gardening. I mean, Dave Goulson, um, who's uh, he's a sort of insect specialist. He's written a great book about the the insect apocalypse, and his argument um, is really we need to have um, allotments and gardens. You know, people they are tremendously productive. People don't tend to put poisons on them when they're producing food for themselves and we need to relocalize um, food production in that way and as i was saying you know human labor can be tremendously productive on a per acre basis um but obviously you know that then knocks into questions of economics and access to land land prices um you know uh, and, and the whole kind of productive economy so um you know 
I can't sort of piece this all together into one blueprint, but I think if we don't start doing that and experimenting and doing it by design, it's going to happen anyway by default in more chaotic ways that, you know, people are just going to be reacting to, as you say, these shocks and, you know, the, the everything that the political and, and um, biophysical systems are throwing at us. So, you know, might mm-hmm. as well start now. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I think uh, there's a, uh... One of the big problems there as well, you're talking about land, right, is that we actually still don't know who owns large parts of the country right. because of, you know, uh, land 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 registry gets introduced, what, like late 1800s. So every time there's a sale, yes, it goes down. But if the land has not been sold or bought in the intervening period, we don't know who it is. I mean, guys yeah. from Souls tried to map it and not yeah. been able to do the whole country because yeah. of these huge estates. Um, just uh, might feel slightly random, but a small point you mentioned in that answer, uh, livestock and their role within sort of the ecological system and not just as, you know, the meat or the dairy Mm, or the mm. eggs or whatever. Could you talk about, could you give an example of how, you know, you could fold in, I don't know, maybe a large ruminant like a cow into agroforestry or the role of a pig perhaps in, um, you know, rooting rooting the land. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, you know, most um, local agricultures worldwide, um, you know, basically they involve um, a rotation between, uh, a grass that humans can eat such as wheat um, and a grass uh, and also legumes that humans can eat you know peas or beans of some sort and grasses and legumes that humans can't eat you know like a, a grazing grass and clover say and that's the way that you keep the soil in good health and um, you know keep it fertile and productive and uh, a ruminant you know a cow um, is a sort of classic animal for mediating that that relationship so the cow will will graze um the the pasture uh i mean you can have stockless systems but then if you're following you know you need to manage the grass and you'll do it with machinery which you know is a huge concentration of energy so in a low energy system you'll use a cow you will probably confine the cow in the winter so that it doesn't damage the pasture so you accumulate lots of um, manure and straw from the from from your wheat crop you know that then becomes a fertility input you know the cow isn't generating the fertility but it's cycling it um um, and then of course you do get the milk and some meat um, but the the real purpose is to manage that rotation that produces plant food for people and keeps the soil in good health and the cow is a is a kind of vector in that process so and you know pigs um great uh, great eaters of waste basically you know we you know fat particularly in you know in northerly climates like this you know we don't really have good oil seed crops but we can feed food waste to pigs and they produce you know high fat high grade food um and that you know the problem again as with everything in the in the sort of modern fossil fueled economy is that we've 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 kind of unstitched all those relationships and now you know we're producing pork uh, uh, uh sort of on demand by feeding them uh grains and grain legumes absolutely the wrong thing to be doing you know we should be eating those and feeding the pigs the waste so for sure that will mean less you know eating less meat le- eating less animal products than we're accustomed to but not non you know because they're important in a mm-hmm. in a low energy economy and just to come back you, know, you know, I, I absolutely agree with your previous point about access to land you know which has been um, kind of a little bit sideline you know access to rural land in in our kind of modern urban industrialized society 
But that is going to be a, a, a huge political issue in the future, which I talk about a little bit in my first book. Um, well, both books, I guess. Um, but yeah, you know, and it's beginning to sort of take off. You know, you mentioned Guy Shrubsoll's kind of, um, you know, right to Rome type of um, narrative is taking off. But I think, you know, we kind of need a right to farm narrative. Mm. And that's where, you know, these um, job rich, small, ecologically cycling systems are just going to be so important. I think that's um, that's really a really important point for the audience because, I mean, getting into a history lesson, you know, post-enclosure, the, the idea that there was common land on which, you know, if you lived in the area, you could farm, you know, is it's almost boggles the mind because people in society now are not used, you can't walk across someone's <laughs> estate, let alone, you know, go up there, till the land, put, yeah. put down wheat or, you know, plow it or whatever, that that's, that that's, um, that that's not there. And it, I, I think as much as um, this is a conversation about economics and food production, it is inevitably a political discussion as well, mm. isn't it? About mm. the order of society, who owns what, and whether actually it's right that they do and that sort of as a public, we're denied access to, you know, the land in, in the way that we are now. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, it's, I think it's important to look carefully at those narratives that there's a kind of narrative of agricultural improvement. And, you know, you go back to the 18th century and, and you know, people are are really clever at inventing um, economic and land use systems, uh, you know, when when times are tough and when resources and land are tight, people are often pretty smart at figuring out, okay, you know, what do I need to produce for myself and what do I need to share with other people? So things like grazing and woodland where, you know, it doesn't make sense for everyone to have their own pasture or their own woodland, uh, whereas it probably does make sense for everyone to have their own little garden. So, you know, so people have figured out these systems and that's what I think we need to learn from. It's not about kind of techno fixes. It's about social fixes of how we come together to organize food production better. But there's long been this narrative that, you know, there was, you know, it's what I call an agricultural improver narrative, you know, going right back to the 18th century. It's like, oh, look at all those people with their, you know, silly little commons. It's, you know, they're poor, it's unproductive. You know, if we clear them off the land, get them, get them to the cities, you know, there's almost like two narratives that, you know, that there's, there's, there's the kind of positive industrialization narrative that everyone hated being on the land and was desperate to rush to the cities. And, you know, there's a grain of truth in that, uh, you know, arguably depending, but the other narrative, as you say, is a narrative of enclosure. People had no choice. You know, there was this agricultural improvement narrative pushing people off the land. Um, and that's the leg, you know, that's where the, the legacy of that is where we are today. And I think, you know, the narrative is continuing with, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, now let's get rid of more farming and, um, you know, let's develop new technologies, you know, let's let the damage that farmers are causing or the poverty that they're in, you know, we can correct that with yet more um, sort of high tech, high energy interventions. And I guess my my work really is to is to question that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Get out of my pub! It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Let's talk about techno fixes. Um, <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about, because I guess in a way, you know, we had George Mombi on the channel recently, um, which, you know, repeat viewers will be familiar with. Very popular interview. And in said interview, I sort of put the case, the sort of the small farm future case to him. And I was going to dress these words up as my own, but I'm just going to, it's just their quotes. So, um George kind of, well, he said, you know, feeding a 21st century population with a Neolithic model, dot, 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 is a bucolic fantasy. It's a formula for global starvation and mass environmental destruction. And the follow-on is then the the arguments that he makes sort of in Regenesis around, you know, um, lab farming. I was going to call it literal factory farming, but just to, (laughs) to, to to save people the confusion, you know, the idea that we can potentially grow proteins in laboratories that, you know, um, vertical farm far- farming indoors is are options that are available to us and, you know, g- giving him the opportunity to kind of, um, to, 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 to critically engage with your work, you know, I'll give you the opportunity to also mm. sort of critically engage with his ideas. Yeah. Which is what I do in my, in my new book. Um, yeah, I watched that interview and, and um, I mean, to my mind, you know, he has resorted there to this pejorative language without actually doing an analysis of, well, you know, you know, why is it a narrative of starvation? I mean, I would argue on the contrary that the, you know, the existing highly, um, you know, highly fossil fueled, um, highly globalized food system, which is very, very dependent on a small number of global breadbasket regions that are at great risk from climate change and all of the insecurities in supply chains you know that is a recipe for starvation um you know it's there's there's a real continuity there with that narrative of agricultural improvement that sort of notion that ordinary people doing their thing can't can't feed themselves and you know, it's basically untrue um i mean i noticed in the, the interview i think he used the phrase neo-peasant bullshit i yeah, yeah. <laughs> i remember but he has spoken very positively about peasants so i guess my question is so you know what is the difference between a peasant and a neo-peasant you know i think his argument is well you know peasant is fine if 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 you're a real peasant doing this kind of small-scale farming thing somewhere but yeah but not you know not not to aspire to that as a you know as a, as a larger um direction that the food system could go in 
And I suppose my question would be, why not? I think, you know, this notion of, uh, you know, we, we can't use Neolithic technology. I mean, nobody's talking about dispensing with using wheels, say, you know, so, you know, th this sort of notion that um, we're in the 21st century, there's, this, you know, I mean, yeah, we are. Um, but, you know, every society, every epoch faces it, its problems and can draw, you know, if we get over ourselves a bit, as I was saying earlier, and, and look back to um, agricultural innovations from the past, you know, why why are we incapable of doing that? You know, there's this sort of narrative of progress that, you know, what's right for people in the past can't be right for what's for us now in the 21st century. I mean, we're not exactly making a great fist of things in the 21st century. So why not try and learn, learn from... Um, uh, older forms of, of agricultural production that were much more keyed into the the, the limits and the possibilities of, of the local. Um, so yeah, I think he's, you know, he's he's kind of using this pejorative language to avoid analysis. You know, there's no analysis in his book of you know what local food systems could look like. Um, so yeah, I I, th I think that's problematic to be honest. Yeah, is there a little bit as well? Um if you could maybe address, I think a point that he would make would perhaps be about land sparing and it would be about um, that essentially the, the sort of the, the low input, medium yield, let's say farming is ecologically destructive and that a better use for that land is to turn it over, um, rewild it. And yeah, okay, maybe you sort of take the NEP model and you, you get very low yield sort of meat out of it or you know whatever but generally speaking you're basically turning it over over to nature yeah yeah i mean he does invoke the nep model a lot but there are there are other models of agroecology that are much more productive of food and yet create space for nature i mean i there's a chapter in my book where i i, I go through this in some detail i mean i think it is probably the strongest argument on the eco-modernist side or the techno-fix side that you know we're causing a lot of damage or farming causes a lot of damage to to the natural world it's important to distinguish between different kinds of farming you know i mentioned dave goulson's work so much of the damage is caused by agrochemicals which are essentially labor substituting chemicals you know if you're like one farmer with a big tractor and several hundred acres the only way that you can manage that land is with pesticides, fungicides, um, herbicides, fertilizers, and, and you know that causes a lot of damage. So, you know, my feeling is that the the the, the debate about land sparing and land sharing is is too black and white. I mean, definitely that we need to leave some land alone for nature. You, you know, there are other difficulties in that. Um, yeah, you know, if you just leave land alone, depending on what part of the world we're talking about, you will get wild ruminants, you'll get fire regimes in, in, in a lot of parts of the world, which will, you know, quickly sort of torch the land and, you know, and, and, and be sort of highly productive of greenhouse gases. So we, you know, often we can't completely resign from the role of, of managers. But I think, you know, that's why I say it's really important for us to think of ourselves as, as, um, you know, Aldo Leopold's famous phrase, plain members and citizens of the biotic community rather than it, its rulers. But it's too black and white, that argument, I think. I mean, you know, there's plenty of ways in which we can um, produce food for ourselves and create space for nature as well. You know, there's there's kind of gradations within that for sure. It's great for us not to 
you know, uh, stampede over uh, over everywhere. But then that goes back to the logic of overproduction I was talking about earlier, which which Monbiot doesn't really address in his book. You know, he keeps talking about sort of high yield. The consequence of that is, um, you know, high yield e- equals kind of lower per per acre prices for, um, or, or, or sorry, I should, you know, it basically. Um, it, it lowers agricultural prices that then challenges um, farmers' incomes. And so the impetus is then to use more um, ecologically damaging inputs or to extend, um, you know, to increase land take. So, you know, we have to deal with the the sort of wider economics. It's not just that farming damages wildlife. It's, you know, t- different types of farming and the larger economic systems within which they're they're situated that cause the damage. So for sure, you know, we do need to be trying to lower our footprint. Um, but the you know the the best way of doing that isn't necessarily by going down this farm free route, which you know is kind of another narrative enclosure in my view. This this kind of argument that we need to increase yields is going to ultimately push a lot of people out of farming and you know it's already being used as a kind of logic of enclosure to sort of get people out you know this whole narrative that low you know poor peasant farmers are causing um ecological damage um so you know that's why it's so important to re-empower ourselves and communities and particularly poor farmers um and poor pastoralists globally who don't have a strong political voice you know it's so important not to just kind of go for this narrative of ag- agricultural improvement that you know is basically going to push them off the land i think that's a really important point because sort of particularly within electoral politics certainly within sort of um you know uh, conservative party traditions in this country farmers are kind of um venerated or idolized right or at least they're paid lip service to and then you sort of go well i think it's about two percent of our workforce is is agricultural in this country which is a you know a global low um one of global lows we sign trade deals that open up our markets to the access of goods that are produced let's say i know we talk about australia for example much looser animal welfare standards we impose very harsh ones on our own farmers Hmm. uh, so financially they can't compete with what's being shipped in from australia you're talking about a group of people that you know uh very seriously affected by bankruptcy Hmm. by suicide as well it's it's very difficult to be a farmer Hmm. in this country at the moment it is. Um, I mean, bear in mind that that kind of 2% figure is, um, you know, in terms of of the actual labor force involved in producing our food, you know, what we tend to do. I mean, I, I, speaking as a, as a horticulturalist, you know, we import so much of our fruit and vegetables because basically anything that is, uh, y- y- you know, in a, in a sort of um, wealthy economy like ours, um, Anything that involves human labor is dear. Anything that you can mechanize is cheap. So we've kind of mechanized the hell out of farming and are importing, um, you know, either the products of, of labor intensive agriculture, horticulture, or importing the actual labor. So, you know, the actual figure is higher. But yeah, you're right. I mean, this, you know, farming is this weird industry where, um, you know, it basically services the wider economy. So it's been sort of pushed to, you know, to, to, a a remuneration below the level of, um, you know, of its own input costs. Um, and then, we, you know, we've got this kind of crazy subsidy regimens and sort of ways of, of micromanaging it. Um, 
but it's kind of functional to the wider economy. Cheap food um, is functional to the wider economy, um, but not in a good way. Particularly, you know, it kind of uh, uh, gives the opportunity for lots of other um, sort of monopolists and economic players to sort of take their piece of the action a- along the way, which is another reason why reclaiming local food um, uh, production, you know, for ourselves and in our communities is important. But yeah, you know, there is, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of um, stress and strain in, in the, the local farming communities. And I think, you know, a lot of alienation caused by the fact that, you know, post-war, the emphasis was very much on, um, you know, get big, um, get business-like, produce more, you know, produce cheap food and now it's suddenly switched to oh you guys are destroying the um you know nature you're destroying the planet and well yeah to some extent that that's that's true but it's as a result of you know precisely the 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 incentives and the pressures that farmers were put put on um and you know i think this is one a wider problem in in our um present political moment is you know we're all aware that there there are these tremendous threats to the planet but it's very easy to point the finger at other people and say oh you know it's um it's fossil fuel companies you know which it is but there's a you know the the entire um economy is running off fossil fuel you know that's that's the kind of lifeblood of everything we do including farming um, so, you know, that, and that's an important context to understand that the damage of farming is in some ways derivative of fossil fuel. Um, but we have to kind of own it more widely as a society and say, look, we need to be producing food locally. We need to be, you know, we, we probably, you know, we do need to be farming differently, as I've been saying, mm-hmm. but we need to own that uh, politically and make it possible for people to do that, for farmers to do that, rather than having this you know, very top down, well, farmers have got it all wrong. So, you know, we need to regulate the hell out of them um, and expect to continue, you know, the essentially business as usual in terms of food prices and, and, and all the other aspects of it. And, you know, farmers are doing some great innovative things, but, you know, they can't bear all of that burden um, on their own shoulders. You know, they, they need help. It, on a point of um, curiosity, I guess, to be honest with you, there's and you, I'd really be interested in your perspective as a farmer on this as well, or a smallholder, if, if that's a better term. But there's more deer in England right now than I think there ever has been in the history of the island because they don't, they don't have apex predators anymore. They're basically just predated by humans. And I wondered if you've considered thought about that venison as a food source in this country before, and but particularly I'd like to hear your perspective as someone who grows food, right? Because um, I suspect you've probably you've probably got a fair few deer banging around there where, <laughs> where you guys are. Yes, uh, deer can be a problem, um, and and yeah, you know, absolutely. You get uh, again the, the, this kind of histories of enclosure. I mean, obviously, it's a huge issue in Scotland with um, forestry. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, and and you know, originally. Um, smallholders displaced by sheep you know that industry collapses there's nobody around the deer move in you know again that kind of wild ruminant issue and and again you know hunting is sort of complicated because um, you know you you really need communities to be taking responsibility for managing um the, the the wild creatures as well as the you know domesticated food production but it kind of gets a little bit twisted by um you know again by land ownership and by by um the way that we that we permit or don't permit hunting so yeah some of the yeah uh, 
some of the wild creatures um, can be a problem. I mean, we have problems with deer. I mean, you know, <laughs> one of the problems, with, you know, is in southern southern England, it's quite crowded. I wouldn't be that happy, you know, with a rifle in my hands with the public footpath kind of. But but you know, we have other problems with you know squirrels, rabbits, and yep. so on. So and that's kind of what I mean by making ourselves. Uh, ecological protagonists, you know, and and again, the Aldo Leopold sort of plain member and citizen, you know, you do have to take a position on 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 sort of fighting your corner a, a little bit. But that's what I think is why it's so important for us to be producers of food rather than just to assume that someone will, you know, sort out this this problem or you know will somehow figure out how to produce food. You know, when you are you know, our, our nut crop last year, for example, was was completely decimated by squirrels. So, you know, we do um, control the grey squirrel population. Um, you know, that we could have a whole conversation about that. But it's mm. it's when you start sort of being, you know, being within that ecology that that you can have this debate. You know, um, but yeah, for sure, there is there is venison out there. Um, you know the deer cause problems to crops and trees and that again that you know we get into that conversation about you know not being able to just absent ourselves from from this ecology but actually taking a position in it and we can debate the rights and wrongs of it but you know we need to be in that in that space in that narrative just just finally i wondered if uh, i could ask for a word from you on kind of the um the social consequences in our modern society of absenting ourselves from that process. You know, someone goes to Tesco and buys a kilo of chicken thighs, you know, it comes, probably not a lovely plastic box, but you know, <laughs> it's in a plastic box and doesn't really, you know, necessarily think, okay, we've got eight chicken thighs here. So that's four, there's four chickens in this, yeah. in this box here. You know, what, what do you think the consequences of that sort of disconnect from well, the food production has been? I think that's a good question. And I think, you know, the whole, um, we, we haven't really touched on the whole manufactured meat or manufactured protein, mm. but the, the logic behind that is that we can dematerialize humans from the wild landscape and, yeah. you know, manufacture our own food. There's a big assumption in that that everyone will be like, oh, great, you know, we'll just leave the wild places alone. Um, I'm not sure that will happen. I mean, you know, cities have this enormous footprint reaching out in all sorts of ways, you know, um, that, that, you know, potentially there's any number of things that, you know, alternative uses for the land. And it's that kind of alienation from actually knowing what's going on or just thinking of the countryside as a place to visit, you know, rather than as a place to live and work and, and, and to live alongside other organisms that you know i don't think ultimately that's going to go anywhere good you know this this sort of you know godlike abstraction in 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 our cities which are not you know they're not autonomous ecologies from the the wider world so yeah i i think that's problematic and i mean in my in my new book i make the point that people in the past as i was saying earlier you know they developed very good clever systems for managing the local ecology but they didn't necessarily have a sense of themselves as as um as having a kind of global footprint you know that that um you know that given the chance they would go somewhere else and draw down on resources whereas now we kind of have the opposite problem that we've got a very keen sense of finite global resources 
but we have no real sense of how you know how how to limit our our, our call on local resources. So we dream up these techno fixes that we think are going to dematerialize um, our, our call on those resources. If you look more closely at them, I don't think they do dematerialize our call. You know, they're very energy intensive, but also kind of at a philosophical level, it's like how, you know, you know where are we going with this? Can we really abstract ourselves as, you know, as, as kind of non-ecological, almost non-biological beings and, and leave the, the rest of the world be? I don't see that playing out, you, you know, philosophically, ecologically in a good way. I'm inclined to agree with you. Um, Chris Mage, saying no to a farm-free future. Where can um, where can people get themselves a copy? Where would you like them to? Uh, you can get it wherever books are sold, your pref- preferably your local independent bookseller. Um, it's also available as an e-book and as an audio book. So, um, yeah, there's no excuse not to get Absolutely. yourself a copy. <laughs> no excuse whatsoever. Um, and maybe as well, possibly, we see if we can get a little conversation between you and George on the channel as well, because I think that would be pretty revealing. You never know. We'll see. We'll see. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Total Rhubarb. It's the Politics Show Pubcast. That was author and farmer Chris Smage. My name is Ollie Dugmore, and you've been listening to Politics Joe's Pubcast. If you're interested in these ideas, head to the Politics Joe subreddit for good faith discussion and memes about me ploughing fields. Please also leave a review of the pod. It makes a massive difference in the platforms promoting our content and helps new listeners join our community. See you on the next one. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.